Well, last week we started a short series on the church in the book of Acts. And what I was hoping to show you last week was that just like the church in the first century, we as a church have been empowered by the same Holy Spirit to be witnesses to the nations, even here and now in the 21st century. We as individual Christians and as a church are to bear witness with our words about what the Lord Jesus has done for us in the gospel wherever we go. No matter what culture or spiritual climate the church is in, these are the church's marching orders from the Lord and head of the church, Jesus Christ himself. And this series is just me trying to reinforce the basic truth of this. A critical part of our identity as a spirit-filled church is that we are witnesses. We are witnesses. A critical part of our identity as a spirit-filled church is that we are witnesses as individuals and as a corporate church. In other words, every member of the church is a preacher. We have a mandate to go and tell people about Jesus, and His Spirit enables us, empowers us to do so boldly. And as we watch the first church grow and spread the gospel in the book of Acts, we see the message rippling out from the apostles in Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. The church was born on the day of Pentecost when the apostles were given the power of the Holy Spirit to be witnesses in Acts 2, and it's been growing ever since as the Lord adds to his church. Because Jesus is building his church, he continues to build his church through the preaching of the gospel, through people witnessing. And uh, as we consider the Lord building his church, and now in the 21st century, here in Ottawa, we continue the work of witnessing as individuals and as a church community. Now, unlike the apostles of the first century, we don't, we don't speak under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, meaning we don't speak or write God's, word, uh, God's words or God's word. But we repeat and retweet what we hear and read in God's word. Right? We, we don't come up with a new message. We are telling the same message that they told as witnesses with different personalities, skills, and styles. We each bring the same message from the Bible to a different subculture, subdivision, surrounding, and situation. Wherever God has placed you as a believer, has placed us as a church, in whatever groups of friends we're in, we recognize that one of the reasons he's dropped us here is to be witnesses for Jesus as opportunities come our way. And last week we saw that the Apostle Peter had an opportunity to witness. But it started with him seeing and hearing, sorry, healing a crippled man in the name of Jesus. We saw that in Acts chapter 3. He then used that moment, that opportunity, to preach Christ to a crowd of Jewish people. And the message was believed by some, yet the authorities in the temple were greatly annoyed by the preaching, so they put them in jail for a night. And today we pick up in the narrative where we left off last week in Acts chapter 4, verse 5. So 
Please grab a Bible. If you don't have one, use one in front of you. It's on page 912. We're going to look at Acts chapter 4. And in this text today, we're going to see that Christ builds his church by empowering us to speak the gospel in the face of the devil's attacks. And let's start with prayer. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you'd give us ears to hear what your word says, and that you'd give us the faith, the strength, the very desire to obey what your word says by the power of your spirit. Lead us deeper in our knowledge of Christ and our love for him and our neighbor, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing we'll see today is that Christ builds his church by empowering us to speak the gospel even when authorities question us. Look at verse 5 of chapter 4. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were in the high priestly family. So the, the apostles had been locked up at this point for preaching Christ. Now it's the next day and the rulers, the elders, and the scribes gather to investigate about the healing. This group is a big group gathered known as the Sanhedrin. It had 71 members and in addition to what we see in addition to that what we see in these verses is that there's a former high priest named Annas and Caiaphas his son-in-law is also there along with John and Alexander who we don't know anything about. But the point is is that these were powerful people and the big names in Jerusalem's religious crowd. So this is a powerful uh, table set and we might liken this religious uh, gathering to something like the, supreme, the religious supreme court of the land. And they met to examine, to consider the apostles about the power that they used to heal this man. They're concerned about the authority and the power that they had to heal this crippled man who everybody knew had been crippled for a long time. He was over 40 years old and he was crippled since he was born. So that was the sign that we saw in chapter 3. It was done in the name of Jesus, Peter emphasized, as we saw last week. Now, Peter sought to make it clear in that speech that he didn't heal this man by his own power and piety. Pointing away from himself, he's trying to highlight what the Lord Jesus has done, uh, had did, and he was emphasizing that he was healed in the power and in the name of Jesus. That was the means by which this crippled man was healed. And we well, considered last week what the name of someone means. It doesn't mean a magic word that brings healing. To say, I'm healed in Jesus' name, doesn't mean a, a magic word that brings healing, but it stands for the person of Jesus himself. So the man was healed by the powerful presence of the risen Lord Jesus himself. Now this is important to consider as we make sense of their question in verse 7. So these religious leaders are gathered together. They're trying to uncover who gave the apostles the right and the authority to heal because they knew that they didn't give this man the authority to heal. So they bring the apostles in front of them, and as verse 7 says, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? And this question may sound familiar to us if we've read the Gospels, and specifically if we've read the Gospel of Luke, which is the first book 
of this writer in the book of Acts. So Acts is, uh, is volume two of his New Testament writings. And similar things went on in, in Luke chapter 20, where the religious authorities asked Jesus a similar thing after he cleansed the temple. You might recall in Luke 20, verses 1 to 2, it says, One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up, that's the religious gathering, and said to them, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. But before we get to Peter's answer, remember the promise that Jesus made to Peter and his apostles that relates to such situations. Before Jesus died and rose again, ascended to heaven, he told Peter and his first followers that such things would happen to them. And he says in Luke 12, he said, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. Why? For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And as we see in the book of Acts, I believe this is exactly what happened in the life of Peter because the Holy Spirit does fill him. And he does speak and respond in that moment when the rulers and authorities have him before them. And he speaks the gospel with power and boldness. Watch what happens as Peter responds to their question about authority and power in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man... By what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. So Peter's basically saying, make no mistake about it. This man was healed in the power and in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. If any of them really wanted to know who it was that had the power and authority to heal this man, now they knew it was Jesus Christ. The answer came also with a burden of responsibility to those who heard Peter speak. In verse 10, he says that they crucified Jesus whom God raised from the dead. Those are pretty shocking words, wouldn't you say? This is now the third time Peter has said this to these religious leaders. He's done it in chapter 2, he does it in chapter 3, and now he's doing it here in chapter 4. Peter has said constantly that the Jewish people are responsible for the crucifixion of Christ. And context is helpful here. Now, for a timeline, remember this is a group of people that were present at Jesus' crucifixion. The crucifixion was not a, not a so distant memory for them. Pentecost happened about 50 days, uh, Pentecost happened 50 days after Passover, when Christ was crucified. So the cross was a fresh memory, which happened within about two months of this speech. Okay? So instead of being intimidated by these rulers, intimidated by the fact that they had, you know, they had their opinions about him and the, the Jesus that he preached, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, goes and preaches boldly to them. Offering them the way of salvation through Jesus. 
in this speech, it's as, as though he's rolling the burden of their guilt squarely on their shoulders. Cornering them, as it were, so he can present the open door of Jesus to them. And I think that's because Peter doesn't want anyone to remain ignorant or miss their opportunity to come to Jesus. I think his preaching is a wonderful expression of love for these people, these rulers, these authorities. He recognizes that they too need to come to Jesus. Even though they're interrogating him, they're doing wrong, he's giving them good news. But at the same time, in this short speech, he's turning the tables on the religious authorities. He's made it clear to them that if the apostles are being questioned about a good deed done to a crippled man, then so be it. But the source of power that healed this man was none other than the risen Jesus, whom they crucified and whom God raised from the dead. He basically says, Jesus, the living Savior, is the person responsible for this man's healing. And you are responsible for rejecting and crucifying him. And then he quotes Psalm 118, which speaks of a righteous and rejected king. He says in verse 11, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. So now we get an image of a building being constructed. But the foundation stone that holds the whole thing up, that holds the, 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 the main walls together, that cornerstone is rejected. The point he's making is that the cornerstone of a building is essential for it to stay up. It would be ridiculous to make a building without a cornerstone, or we would say it would be ridiculous to make a building today without a foundation. Because the building won't remain without it. Some of you are in construction and you know this to be so true. A strong foundation, a good foundation, is critical for a sound, strong building. And this analogy serves as an illustration about the church, about salvation, and what they've done with Jesus. They've rejected salvation because they've re rejected Jesus. Because Jesus is our salvation. There's no salvation without him. Rejecting Christ while building a system of religion, of ways to come back to God, is as stupid as making a building without a foundation. And that's what these religious leaders had done. And just like they wouldn't have a structurally sound building without a foundation, they won't have salvation without Jesus. It will not happen. There's nobody else who saves. There is no other Savior. Peter makes this clear in verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So the Lord's plan of salvation is a person, Jesus Christ. That's his plan. To save humanity, he has sent his son, Jesus. He has given no other name than Jesus to save. The Lord Jesus is the only Savior. There's nowhere else for us to turn. No other prophet to wait for. Salvation was accomplished and revealed to us through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And you can receive salvation by calling on his name. Jesus is the master builder and the foundation of the church's foundation. 
Just as it was Jesus' name that brought about this crippled man's healing, so it is Jesus' name that brings about eternal salvation to anyone who believes in him, to anyone who calls on him. There's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven. There's nowhere in the whole world that you could go to find another Savior. And there's no other person among men in human history and society. There's there's no other person that you could go to to get the salvation that Jesus gives. No one else grants the gift of salvation. It is found only in Jesus. There's truly no other Savior. Jesus alone saves. Trying to find salvation anywhere else is a fool's errand. Salvation is only in Jesus. So let me ask you, friend, have you concluded this for yourself? That Jesus alone is your salvation? Is he who you are building your life on? Have you come to Jesus for salvation or are you trying to build on someone else? He cannot be fooled by religious externals. He sees your heart and he seeks to save Are you trying to find salvation from your guilt and your sin elsewhere? Come to Jesus to forgive, to save, to atone for your guilt and sin. He came to seek and save the lost. And if you're lost today, you are in a good place. And you can come to Jesus today and be saved. If you have any questions about that, please come ask someone in here before you leave. Now, as we move from Peter's response, it's as if the proverbial camera zooms back on the religious leaders and their gathering in the next scene. Next we see, Christ builds his church by empowering us to speak the gospel even when opponents try to silence us. Look at verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So let's zero in on this word boldness for a moment. This term gives us a running theme in the book of Acts, and it shows up five times, once in chapter 2, three times in our passage today, and it's in the very last book of chapter, or sorry, the very last chapter, the very last verse of the last chapter in Acts 28. So the boldness, the theme of boldness runs throughout this book. And boldness here refers to a spirit-inspired courage or confidence to speak up despite danger or threats. Do you think in the book of Acts you see people speaking up in the midst of danger and threats? Yes, you constantly see that. And we need to keep this in mind as we watch it in the Apostles today. Another thing to notice in this verse is not only boldness, but that the religious leaders recognize and are actually astonished at these believers. And they recognize that the Apostles were uneducated, common men. Now, I don't think that means that they were illiterate men. The point here is that they spoke courageously and with authority, even though they weren't religious rabbis. They were not formally taught in the schools that these religious authorities would recognize. And this is what perplexed the religious leaders. It's also what perplexed the religious leaders about Jesus, right? 
But as we've seen in Peter's sermons, this is a man, I believe, that was mighty in the Scriptures. This is someone who understood the Word well. But these religious leaders recognized they didn't give Peter the authority to speak like that. The apostles were largely unknown and unimportant to these religious higher-ups. But here's the point we must glean. The Holy Spirit gave the apostles the authenticity, the power, the authority to preach in Jesus' name. Because they had been with Jesus. They were chosen by Jesus. They walked with Jesus. They lived and learned from Jesus. These men knew Jesus. And because they knew him, they had knowledge and authority that surpassed the religious rulers and confounded them. Like Jesus, they didn't have professional credentials. And like Jesus, they confounded the religious leaders of their day. They were with Jesus for three years, remember, learning God's Word by listening and learning and following Him. There was no greater teacher and model for discipleship than the Lord Jesus Himself. And they sat at His feet. And these apostles received their authority to heal and to teach from Jesus Himself. So, what will the leaders do now? Look at verse 14. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. The evidence that supports the, the apostles' authority is standing right in front of these men. The crippled man is now healed and the religious leaders are stumped. What can they do? They, they can't argue against the authority. The sign backs up the credibility of Peter's speech on salvation through the name of Jesus. But now we come to verse 16, which brings us into the leadership's dilemma and decision-making. They want to bring a verdict on these men, but they're worried about public opinion. So the powers that be gather together to try to make a decision. They want to make a verdict. So they were ruled, it seems, not by integrity, but worried about public opinion, they seemed to be men, although there was strength in numbers, they seemed to be men that were weak in integrity because they were ruled by the fear of man. And this is common in leadership circles, isn't it? Oftentimes, leaders care more about what the people will say and what public opinion is, and they think more about what people will think about them than they are concerned about doing what's right. And here we see the fear of man plays into their decision making. Look at verses 15 to 18. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. <laughs> so here's their dilemma. They don't want the apostles to keep preaching the name of Jesus and his resurrection. Remember, they were greatly annoyed by the preaching. Uh, but they cannot deny that a credible, notable, verifiable sign has been done through these apostles who are testifying that it was done 
in the power of Jesus. So to intimidate them about preaching about Jesus, they admonished them to speak no longer in Jesus' name. So instead of denying the obvious healing, but in order to stop the spread of the gospel in Jerusalem, the council gives them a warning. And it almost seems like they're trying to instill the fear of man into these God-fearing apostles. Here's what the religious leaders want them to do. Stop telling people about Jesus. Just, just stop. Just be quiet. Would you, would you just shut up? They don't want the name of Jesus, who heals and saves people, gaining more power in Jerusalem. They want to keep their own power. So they want to silence the apostles from witnessing. But these men were filled with the power of God. They were filled with God's Spirit. So these fear tactics don't work on them. And dare I say, friends, if these fear tactics hit us, we should respond in the same way that these apostles responded. These apostles who feared God more than men may have remembered what Proverbs 29 says, that the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Many seek the face of a ruler, but it is from the Lord that a man gets justice. Ruled by the desire to love, obey, and fear God, watch what they do in verse 19. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. See the courage of the apostles here. They're being cornered by the authorities and told to stop spreading the word of Christ. But they don't hem and haw about this. They see this matter very clearly from the start. The authorities are telling them not to do what God has told them to do. Namely, to be witnesses of the Lord Jesus from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. To Peter, it's a no-brainer. He cannot do what they're asking him to do. And he will not. He basically says in verse, verses 19 and 20, I'm not going to disobey God's commands and obey yours. You judge whether it's right for me to listen to your words over God's, but I'm compelled to speak of what I've seen and heard in Jesus. Amen? Peter will later say, when he's questioned about, Peter's, uh, about preaching in Jesus' name, he says in chapter 5, verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. When it comes to preaching Christ, we Christians don't have an option. We must obey God rather than men. And that doesn't mean we're to be unwise or arrogant in our witness. Not at all. But the Holy Spirit gives us power to not cower in such situations, but to speak boldly in the name of Jesus. If authorities and governments tell us to be silent about Jesus, God's word overrides such authorities. And the Holy Spirit gives us the power to speak in the face of such threats and dangers. Now, what does this mean for us, church? You know what this means. Preaching is not an option 
for a believer. Preaching is not an option for you, believer. Preaching is a matter of obedience and disobedience. We must obey God rather than men. And that means we must preach Christ because God told us to. Even if men, authorities, rulers, and governments tell us to shut up. We must obey God, even when men tell us to be quiet. Now, some of you may hear that and say, well, I'm a new believer, and I don't really know how to preach or teach. Well, you know, one of the first opportunities you have as a new believer to preach, to witness, to testify about what Jesus has done, they did it in the book of Acts, and we still do it today, it's by getting baptized. In the book of Acts, there's a pattern set for us that shows people believe, are converted, turn to the Lord Jesus, and then they're baptized. And every time someone gets baptized, they are publicly and visually testifying or witnessing about what the Lord Jesus has done for them. In a mixed crowd of believers and unbelievers, you can testify, you can witness, you can preach about what Jesus has done for you. So if you're a believer and you haven't yet been baptized, consider if your next opportunity to, to witness might be you going through the waters of baptism and testifying about what Jesus has done, have, has done for you. And some of you are from countries where it's illegal to preach, or to get baptized. They say it's a crime, though it's a command from God. And in such cases, we must obey God rather than men. Now before we move to the next scene in this text, let me say one more thing about witnessing. Every believer is filled with the Spirit and called to go and be a witness. Every believer is given the power of the Holy Spirit to do so, to tell others what Jesus has done for them. But this does not mean that every believer needs to do this in the same way. It means that we'll tell others about Jesus with our own gifts, our own personalities, our own unique and creative skills and personal styles. There is such a variety in the way God has brought the church together that we are to definitely use our own gifts and skills and passions to be witnesses. But here's the thing I want to emphasize today. Witnessing spills out of us because we're filled with the Holy Spirit. What's inside of us comes out of us, right? In other words, we obey God by witnessing because we love God and are filled with His Spirit. And we witness to our neighbors, not because we're forced to do so, but because we love our neighbors, right? We love God, and he tells us to love our neighbor as ourself. We don't use our neighbors as objects to witness to. We love Jesus. He's on our hearts, so we tell our neighbors about what we love and what's on our hearts. Though some of us may want to be Silence. Though some of our neighbors may want us to be silent about Jesus, some of them want us to go away with our Jesus talk, we must obey God rather than men. Our witnessing is a way we express our love for God and our love for our neighbor. 
So get creative in the ways that God has gifted you naturally, supernaturally, spiritually. How the Lord has gifted you will vary in many ways, but that we're called to be witnesses is abundantly clear in Scripture. Now that we've seen how the religious leaders sought to intimidate and silence the apostles from speaking and teaching of Jesus, let's see how the apostles respond when they're released from this intense scrutiny. The next thing we see is that Christ builds his church by empowering us to speak the gospel in the face of persecution. Look at verses 23 to 24. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had done to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. The apostles are now updating their fellow believing friends of what just happened. Then their friends hear the report and begin lifting their voices in prayer. And listen to their prayer in verse 24. They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So the apostles are responding to the persecution, to the interrogation by praying. And they pray a remarkable prayer, quoting from Psalm 2 and recalling who the Lord is. This prayer is saturated in Scripture and it highlights God's sovereign work through creation, through speaking, and then through deciding over human history. They acknowledge that God sovereignly worked even through rulers who are responsible for doing evil and working against the Lord Jesus. This is another theme in the book of Acts. God is sovereign and humans are responsible. And human responsibility and divine sovereignty are playing out in human history. The themes run together in Scripture. Now once these believers have their heart connected to the Lord and their eyes on the Lord, they now bring their requests to Him. And what they pray for and don't pray for is instructive for us as a church. They pray that God would consider their enemies' threats and enable them to speak with, catch it again, boldness, as he works in the name of Jesus. Look at verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So now they're connecting their current situation to the scripture and the Lord who is sovereignly at work. They pray now with the opposition of the leaders in mind, but with Scripture's interpretation on things. They're putting their opponents in scriptural categories. And here they're praying and reinterpreting Psalm 2, considering their most recent events. They see the connection between those who oppose Jesus, leading to his crucifixion, uh, Herod and Pilate here, and those who oppose Jesus and his message, trying to silence them, namely the rulers and people of Israel. The point is, those who oppose Jesus 
also oppose his message and his church. But God is working, God is working over these evil people and evil decisions to bring about his sovereign plan. The truth they rest in is that ungodly leaders will not have the final word. God will. God's purposes will stand. Remember what Jesus asked Saul in Acts chapter 9. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So to persecute and oppose the church, the body of Christ, is to persecute and oppose Christ. We are connected to him by faith. You know what this tells us as a church is that if the authorities are against the church today, that's because they're against the Lord. And what should we do in such situations when the authorities are against the church and her Lord? Taking our cues from scriptures like these, we're to pray for the Holy Spirit to empower the church to boldly witness despite the pressure to be silent. That's what these believers did. And I think that's what we should do as well. They asked the Lord to see the threats made against the church and to embolden the church to keep on speaking. That the church wouldn't buckle under the pressure to be silent. I think they bring this to the Lord in prayer because they're like us in many ways. And I think they would be anxious and they would be tempted to cave under the pressure of these intimidating leaders. And we can be tempted to do the same, can't we? Tempted to be nice and politically correct instead of winsomely, wisely preaching in the face of threats. Notice also that they don't pray for judgment to fall on these leaders or for safety from the leaders. But they do pray for God to grant them boldness to keep speaking His word in the face of their powerful persecutors. And they pray for God's hand to keep working the signs and wonders in the name of Jesus. And as we saw, the signs the apostles do point us to the Lord Jesus in the gospel. And the prayer is answered. God shows up in an unmistakable way in verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. The church continues. God sees them, and God sees the threats of their enemies, and God is present by His Holy Spirit in their midst, and He fills them once again to empower them to boldly speak in the face of such dangers and threats. So they keep on speaking. Once again, the Holy, uh, the Holy Spirit fills the church with his power so that the church continued to speak the word of God with boldness and Christ keeps building his church. As verse 32 and 33 says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Jesus was still building his church through his people who are speaking his words, and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. It was true then, and it's still true now, church. 
no matter what opposition we face as a church in the 21st century Canada, let's remember Calvary. Who has the final power and authority on heaven and earth? And who is with us even to the end of the age? He's given us the words to speak. So let's use our voice and not let anyone silence us because we, church, are his witnesses on this earth. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you have not forsaken us, that you have not left us, but you are with us in our midst. You continue to empower us to speak and you continue to build your church through the preaching of the word. Now I pray for each and every one of these individual believers here today that they would be strengthened in your joy to continue to be witnesses to those around them. In Jesus' name, amen.